Chapter Thirteen of Whispering Smith by Frank Spearman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen: The Turn in the Storm. The beginning of the Crawling Stone Line marked the first determined effort under President Bucks while undertaking the reconstruction of the system for through traffic to develop the rich local territory tributary to the mountain division new policies in construction dated from the same period glover with an enormous capital staked for the new undertakings gave orders to push the building every month of the year and for the first time in mountain railroad building winter was to be ignored the older mountain men met the innovation as they met any departure from their traditions with curiosity and distrust on the other hand the new and younger blood took hold with confidence and when glover called yo heave at headquarters they bent themselves clear across the system for a hard pull together mcleod resting the operating on the shoulders of his assistant anderson devoted himself wholly to forwarding the construction plans and his first clash over winter road-building in the Rockies came with his own right-hand man, Mears. McLeod put in a switch below Piedmont, opened a material yard, and began track-laying toward the lower Crawling Stone Valley, when Mears said it was time to stop work till spring. When McLeod told him he wanted track across the divide and into the lower valley by spring, Mears threw up his hands but there was metal in the old man, and he was for orders all the time. He kept up a running fire of protests and forebodings about the danger of exposing men during the winter season, but stuck to his post. Glover sent along the men, and although two out of every three deserted the day after they arrived, Mears kept a force in hand, and crowded the track up the new grade as fast as the ties and steel came in working day in and day out with one eye on the clouds and one on the tie-line and hoping every day for orders to stop december slipped away to christmas with the steel still going down and the disaffected element among the railroad men at medicine bend waiting for disaster the spectacle of mcleod handling a flying column on the crawling stone work in the face of the most treacherous weather in the mountain year was one that brought out constant criticism of him among Sinclair's sympathizers and friends, and while MacLeod laughed and pushed ahead on the work, he waited only for his discomfiture. Christmas Day found MacLeod at the front, with men still very scarce, but Mears' gang at work and laying steel. The work train was in charge of Stevens, the freight conductor, who had been set back after the Smoky Creek wreck and was slowly climbing back to position. They were working in the usual way, with the flat cars ahead pushed by the engine, the caboose coupled to the tender being on the extreme hind end of the train. At two o'clock on Christmas afternoon, when there was not a cloud in the sky, the horizon thickened in the east. Within thirty minutes the mountains from end to end of the skyline were lost in the sweep of a coming wind and at three o'clock snow struck the valley like a pall mears greatly disturbed ordered the men off the grade and into the caboose 
McCloud had been inspecting culverts ahead and had started for the train when the snow drove across the valley. It blotted the landscape from sight so fast that he was glad after an anxious five minutes to regain the ties and find himself safely with his men. But when McCloud came in, the men were bordering on a panic. Mears, with his two foremen, had gone ahead to hunt McCloud up, and they passed him in the storm. It was already impossible to see or to hear an ordinary sound ten yards away. McCloud ordered the flat cars cut off the train, and the engine whistle sounded at short intervals, and, taking Stevens, buttoned his reefer and started up the grade after the three trackmen. They fired their revolvers as they went on, but the storm tossed their signals on the ears of Mears and his companions from every quarter of the compass. McCloud was standing on the last tie and planning with his companion how best to keep the grade as the two advanced, when the engine signals suddenly changed. "'Now that sounds like one of Bill Dancing's games,' said McCloud to his companion. "'What the deuce is it, Stevens?' Stevens, who knew a little of everything, recognized the signals in an instant and flew up his hands. "'It's Morse code, Mr. McCloud, and they're in!' mears and the foreman and us for the train as quick as the lord will let us that's what they're whistling so much for an education stevens bully for you come on they regained the flat cars and made their way back to the caboose and engine which stood uncoupled mccloud got into the cab with dancing and stevens mears from the caboose ahead signalled all in and with a whistling scream the engine started to back the caboose to Piedmont. They had hardly more than got under full headway when a difficulty became apparent to the little group around the superintendent. They were riding an unbalanced track, and using such speed as they dared to escape from a situation that had become perilous. But the light caboose, packed like a sardine box with men, was dancing a hornpipe on the rail joints. McCloud felt the peril, and the lurching of the car could be seen in the jerk of the engine tender to which it was coupled. Apprehensive, he crawled back on the coal to watch the caboose himself, and stayed long enough to see that the rapidly drifting snow threatened to derail the outfit any minute. He got back to the cab in order to stop. "'This won't do,' said he to Stevens and the engineman. We can't back that caboose loaded with men through this storm. We shall be off the track in five minutes. Try it slow, suggested Stevens. If we had the time, returned McCloud, but the snow is drifting on us. We've got to make a run for it if we ever get back, and we must have the engine in front of that way car with her pilot headed for the drifts. Let's look at things. Dancing and Stevens, followed by McCloud, dropped out of the gangway. Mears opened the caboose door, and the four men went forward to inspect the track and the trucks. In the lee of the caboose a council was held. The roar of the wind was like the surge of many waters, and the snow had whitened into storm. They were ten miles from a habitation, and, but for the single track they were traveling, might as well have been a hundred miles so far as reaching a place of safety was concerned. They were without food, with a caboose packed with men on their hands. 
and they realized that their supply of fuel for either engine or caboose was perilously slender. "'Get your men ready with their tools, Pat,' said McLeod to Mears. "'What are you going to do?' I'm going to turn the train around and put the nose of the engine into it. Turn the train around? Why, yes, it would make it easy. I'll be glad to see it turned around. But where's your turntable, Mr. McCloud? asked Mears. How are you going to turn your train around on a single track? asked Stevens darkly. I'm going to turn the track around. I know about where we are, I think. There's a little stretch just beyond this curve where the grade is flush with the ground. Ask your engine man to run back very slowly and watch for the bell rope. I'll ride on the front platform of the caboose till we get to where we want to go to work. Lose no time, Pat. Tell your men it's now or never. If we're caught here, we may stay till they carry us home and the success of this little game depends on having everything ready and working quick. Stevens, who stayed close to McLeod, pulled the cord within five minutes, and before the caboose had stopped, the men were tumbling out of it. McLeod led Mears and his foreman up the track. They tramped a hundred yards back and forth, and with steel tapes for safety lines, swung a hundred feet out on each side of the track to make sure of the ground. "'This will do,' announced McLeod. You waited here half a day for steel a week ago. I know the ground. Break that joint, Pat. He pointed to the rail under his foot. Pass ahead with the engine and car about a thousand feet, he said to the conductor. And when I give you a signal, back up slow and look out for a thirty-degree curve, without any elevation either. Get out all your men with lining bars. The engine and caboose faded in the blur of the blizzard as the break was made in the track. Take these bars and divide your men into batches of ten, with a foreman that can make signs if they can't talk English, directed McLeod. Work lively now, and throw this track to the south. Pretty much everybody, Japs, Italians, and Greeks, understood the game they were playing. McLeod said afterward he would match his Piedmont hundred in making a movable Y against any two hundred experts Glover could pick. They had had the experience, he added, when the move meant their last counter in the game of mountain, life or death. The Piedmont hundred, to McLeod's mind, were after that day past masters in the art of track shifting. Working in a driving cloud of grit and snow, the ignorant, the dull, and the slow rose to the occasion. Bill Dancing, Pat Mears, and his foreman, and Stevens, moved about in the driving snow like giants. The howling storm rang with the shouting of the foreman, the guttural cries of the Japs, and the clank of the lining bars as rail length after rail length of the heavy track was slewed bodily from the grade alignment and swung around in a short curve to a right angle out on the open ground. McLeod at last gave the awaited signal, and with keen-eyed anxious men watching every revolution of the cautious driving wheels, the engine hissing and pausing as the air brakes went off and on, 
pushed the light caboose slowly out of the rough spur to its extreme end and stopped with the pilot facing the main track at right angles but before it had reached its halting place spike mulls were ringing at the fish plates where the moment before it had left the line on the curve the track at that point was cut again and under a long line of bars and a renewed shouting it was thrown gradually quite across the long gap in the main line and the new joints in a very rough curve were made fast just as the engine running now with its pilot ahead steamed slowly around the new curve and without accident regained the regular grade it was greeted by a screeching yell as the men climbed into the caboose for the engine stood safely headed into the teeth of the storm for piedmont the ten miles to cover were now a matter of less than thirty minutes and the construction train drew into the piedmont yards just as the telegraph wires were heating from headquarters with orders annulling freights ordering ploughs on outgoing engines and battening the division hatches for a grapple with a christmas blizzard no man came back better pleased than stevens that man is all right said he to mears nodding his head toward mcleod as they walked up from the caboose that's all i want to say some of these fellows have been a little shy about going out with him they've hounded me for months about stepping over his way when sinclair and his mug struck i reckon i played my hand about right End of chapter 13